Susanna Watson, they are, are the standards as they, they play out in your everyday working life, a, a bit like a broken DVD that will come back to bite you on the bum. That's a, a, one of the it's world's greatest mixed metaphors. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what yeah. I mean. I can't say I have them pinned up above my desk and refer to them to help me decide what to do. I don't disagree with the codes of practice. I mean, I think it's a sensible code to work by. And I think, yeah, potentially it gives you a little bit more sense of being somebody who's slightly independent of the organisation you work for, which could give you a sense of having a a bit more kind of clout in terms of your own decision-making. If you really were... loggerheads with your organisation you know if there was a decision you profoundly believed that you had to make to abide by those codes of practice and your organisation disagreed I don't I don't quite know what you would do about it I suppose I mean you would you would whistle blow you would perhaps resign I don't know so I don't know how much they would help at that point. I was going to give a concrete example of the use of discretion well it's in the case of child protection because recently in Scotland they tried to um, introduce mandatory information sharing in a bill about the vetting and barring of people unsuitable to work with children and vulnerable adults and there was a very strong response from the profession about wait a minute we do actually need to keep some discretion and to be able to use discretion in, in the best interests of children in terms of sharing information because quite often if you just share information because it's more than your job's worth not to because you're minding your back because it's better to call in the child protection procedures for your own sake than for the child's you can actually be I think breaking the codes of practice and also breaking the kind of professional duty to protect a child so in some ways what we're saying as an agency is Use your professional discretion, but do use supervision in order Mm. to check it out. Don't think that using your professional discretion means being out on a limb, going on your own, deciding you will or you won't take a certain course of action. At crucial times, you do have to, and people need to know they're responsible for their actions. But it's actually sometimes when you don't know what's for the best, to tell or not to tell, to keep a child secret until such time as you can organise something better, then these things need checked out with experienced social workers and other professionals in order to really get to the the roots of whether your action would be in the best interests of the, the child. Susanna Watson, the thing always about regulations is what springs from them, uh, which is paperwork. How much of your time do you feel is spent servicing regulation? I think it it is quite a lot of time. I, I, I mean, I've been qualified about six years, so some of it, I, I've not been working as a social worker terribly long. Some, some of it, some of the sort of basic paperwork of community care, I've kind of taken as read. It's just what's what's always been there in, in my experience. I think the... Uh, and some of that, I actually think, is, is quite positive. I mean, you're, you're, you're often re- recording information and, sh- and then sharing that recorded information with the service user. So it is a way of actually being quite transparent with the service user about what is being written and, and, and shared about them. And I, and I think those sorts of processes are actually, you know, potentially quite quite positive. And it, and it can also help to sort of think through a situation if you're if you're writing it down and recording reviews of other views of other people. I think, I mean, in the in the last few years, I think what has mushroomed, which has been touched on before, is that is the sort of monitoring of performance of the department, um, and we do spend 
a certain amount of time, and it certainly causes a, a, a disproportionate amount of frustration, um, kind of recording things, the sort of things that Andy was talking about, the sort of timescales for assessments and that kind of thing. So when you finished an assessment, you have to put into the computer kind of, you know, when it was completed. And, and, and that all that information is then churned out at the other end and sent to the government. And I think because that you that's never going to be a priority for a social worker if if you've got a choice between either arranging an emergency placement for a, a, an older person one afternoon or getting your your sort of reporting information your monitoring information up to date you're going to be arranging the placement um and i would really question the accuracy of a lot of the information that's churned out at the other end when it when it's relying on on practitioners to to, to put it in I think we're touching on a, a really complex area here because uh, uh, when we're talking about what's often referred to as the performance framework, we're really talking, I think, about a mixture of things. We're talking about some things which do stem from regulation in the sense that they are connected with the Commission for Social Care Inspection. Um, but there's another aspect of it too, which is government targets and um, and those government targets uh, being implemented uh, through a whole range of different levers that government has. So uh, what is particularly complex about this is trying to identify what exactly is due to regulation and, and arguably kind of standards and standards of service. And what is to do with government targets? Because the argument is, has been made in social care and in health that those targets themselves can distort, potentially distort services, distort the amount of time people spend on certain things, um, provide um, a focus which may not necessarily be the focus that they as professionals think that they should have. Um, now, whether you should therefore see the, the rise, if you like, of a performance culture as entirely due to regulation or whether you should see it as rather more due to the, the focus on targets by New Labour and I guess by Gordon Brown in particular is a moot point. I mean, I think there is a, um, it, it's not clear to me that this is actually driven primarily by regulation. It seems, a lot of it seems to be driven by targets. Could we turn now to the National Occupational Standards for England and Wales? How are they set and how are they meant to define in practice what is good social work? The National Occupational Standards are really at the moment come under the remit of um, Skills for Care and the Children's Workforce Development Council, which are the new sector skills council bodies that the government has set up. They're part and parcel of a major desire on the part of government to make sure that every single job, if you like, in the country is covered by a relevant set of occupational standards. So it's not something unique to social care. It's not something specific to social care. It's a model, really. It's a workforce model about setting standards of performance, if you like. So where else does it apply, then? It applies in almost every other area. I'd be surprised if there aren't some occupational standards governing broadcasting and journalism as well. Well, if but... there are, I don't know what they are, but anyway... <laughs> But the principle is there that it's not just specific to social care. Uh, what is, I think, interesting about the National Occupational Standards is that they've been built into the regulatory framework for social work in a rather particular and unusual way for a profession. What's happened with social work is that when the new degree in social work was set up, the National Occupational Standards for Social Work were built into the requirements for education and training so that now when students uh, follow a social work programme, they are required to demonstrate that they can actually meet all those different occupational standards when they're on placement. So the whole thing is 
is uh, very tightly meshed together. So that's effectively what, what occupational standards are as far as training is concerned, but they're also supposed to govern practice and be a kind of underpinning idea about what the role of the social worker is. And in fact, just to, without uh, going on at great length about it, the national occupational standards are built around a number of uh, key roles which uh, social workers are deemed to be performing. The big problem with it all is, of course, these things get out of date. And, of course, no sooner do you try and implement one of these frameworks than you have to review them and look at them again. And of course, one of the things that's going on at the moment is with the driver towards interprofessional work, multidisciplinary work, people are now saying, look, if we have all these different occupational standards governing different professions, aren't they going to actually drive practice apart? Shouldn't we be trying to simplify these things, bring them together? And there is an enormous project going on to try to integrate different sets of occupational standards. I have to say I'm very thankful I'm no longer involved in this kind of thing because it's absolutely mind-boggling, as you can expect. But some people are, and they're trying to integrate them. How is it different than in Scotland? You've been describing the way training and practice dovetail in England and Wales. What's happening in Scotland? Well, it's interesting what Steve was saying, and although we don't have the same terminology, we don't have the National Occupational Standards, for instance, but I think the two things are going on as well in that, on the one hand, there's becoming a greater clarity about what is the role of the social worker. And recently we had a review of social work in Scotland, the 21st century review, which produced a report called Changing Lives. And part of that, and a working group that I was a member of, was the role of the social worker. And that came along at the same time as protection of title and regulation of, of social workers and registration of social workers. So all of that was going on. But at the same time, we have a new policy document, Getting It Right for Every Child. And there's similar ones for, for adult care, but basically calling for social workers and other professionals to work more closely together, to share tasks, to have a common assessment framework, etc. So the same two things are going on. And I mean, I think it's very interesting that in some ways what we established in the role of the social worker group is that you can't do joint work unless each person is very clear what their work is and that there needs to be a very specific role for social workers in specific situations. Whether we've got the the gap between the training of social workers where there are standards and clear outcomes that are expected from social work education and then what goes on later on, I think, is, is a moot point. And it might be useful to think of some, you know, like the apprentice scheme. I think in Ireland you have to be qualified and practising for a year before you can become a social worker and it's the same in in other professions so I think that might be one way of making sure that continuing education and some sort of occupational standards or a set of standards or knowledge and skills is actually present in the workforce that's practicing.